Want to exhibit your work? BFF doesn't exist without artists. BFF will help you get in contact with neighborhood businesses and spaces and guide you through any other help you need. Start the conversation today at BFFOmaha.org. BFF is dedicated to supporting the region's emerging and established artists by creating opportunity, exposure, and experiences that help them move forward while enriching the cultural competency of the greater Omaha area. BFF to the arts. BFF to the community. BFF. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock. New music, new theme music, new new jazzy music. I went with something a little less lame than usual because, not because it's a more exciting show, just because I wanted something less lame in general. But today we do have an incredibly exciting show. It's possibly my favorite episode we've ever done. Um, I was so excited to get the chance to talk to Senator Megan Hunt. She was here. Possibly the coolest person in Nebraska. Well, and if you're new to the show, if you're just a fan of Megan, uh, Senator Hunt, who wanted to listen and see what she's up to today, let me just say Riverside Chats, in case you need a refresher here or, you know, new introduction, is our idea behind the show is basically there's this idea that all the interesting people in Nebraska move out of Nebraska. Essentially, if you're interesting, the first thing that they'll tell you is, well, you got to get out of Nebraska. You can't stay here. We're here to prove that that's not true, and part of that means we have to find all the interesting people, and then you get a chance to sort of by proxy listen to them talk. It's kind of like you get to know them a little bit, and so that's what we're doing here today, and today it's with possibly the most exciting person uh, in Nebraska, Megan Hunt. She's doing all kinds of amazing things in our Senate, and on top of that, she's just a very cool, inspiring person. Uh, I don't know if... You know, when you listen to the past episodes of this show, not that anyone's trying to make things a downer, but the more you learn, essentially the more you look into the political system, it's very easy to become increasingly disillusioned and cynical about it. And I think I had that. Certainly, uh, you know, in my past I've done that. You know, sort of like when you pull back the curtain, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You see what's actually behind everything. And it's not always this magical, cool, uh, you know, process instead it's often something a little bit more uh you know mundane sometimes corrupt uh you know there's not always a whole lot to feel good about and what was amazing to me and it's not even something i really expected going in was talking to megan and just hearing her approach to our government really made me happy about something it made me you know, it's not like you know one state center can't necessarily fix all the world's problems but she's doing everything she can to and the the philosophy she has i think is so inspiring that it's it's something where i can't imagine why everybody regardless of where you are in the political spectrum why wouldn't you want to be like megan hunt and approach things the way she does you don't have to agree with her and everything but i i feel good for the first time in a long time about our system knowing that megan's you know approaching things the way she is that she's getting something done she's learning how to get things done in the most effective way she can and i'm incredibly honored to have her be the person who represents my district and I think a lot of people in Nebraska feel that way about her. She's different than the usual senator that we have. She's different than the usual representative. And there's a reason why. And in case maybe maybe you haven't talked to her one-on-one like I just got the opportunity to. So maybe you don't know what it is that's different about her. Maybe you already do know. But I think this conversation is a great way to illuminate a little bit about who she is, a little bit about how she got to be where she is, and just the refreshing way that she approaches representing us as Nebraskans. And... It's easy to, even as a Nebraskan who's done a lot to try to dispel the myths about who we are as people or what general views we have as, you know, a red state or whatever you want to say, sometimes you need somebody like Megan to come around and say, no, things things are not the easy, sometimes lazy stereotype that you start to believe as a member of the society here. She's really inspiring. Like I said, I was honored to get the chance to talk to her, and I think that you'll really love it. regardless of whether you agree with her or not. She's worth listening to. She's worth, uh, you know, trying to get to know what she's up to and what she's trying to do and where she comes from as a person. So I was honored to get the chance to talk to Senator Hunt. Um, Her daughter, Alice, also, she was sitting at the table learning Chinese. She had a Chinese workbook, um, which I find impressive as well. It's an impressive family. So I'm very excited to get this chance to share this conversation with you. So please enjoy my conversation with Senator Megan Hunt. So, I mean, 
you're basically, I don't know, in some ways, I don't think it's that common that a lot of our local legislators are also kind of like, oh, you're almost like a local celebrity, I guess, in some ways. Like, I, you know, people in the district, uh, you know, they talk like, oh, I saw Megan Hunt here. Like, <laughs> a friend of mine, I forget how, like, sometime earlier this year, he's like, I just literally ran into Megan Hunt at Kaite. And it's like, you know, everyone's excited to see you around. <laughs> So, I mean, like, are you aware of that you're kind of, you have sort of like, it's, people don't act the same way necessarily when they see some of the other, whether it's, you know, local or even like, you know, running to Brad Ashford wasn't necessarily like this cool event. Like, I just saw Brad Ashford, you know, it's a little, di- I mean, are you kind of, are you aware of the fact that it's a little bit of a different, uh, you know, atmosphere you have? I mean, I'm smiling really big right now. I feel <laughs> a little embarrassed. I'm actually a really shy person and I'm, I'm always worried that if I'm out, maybe people recognize me and... They think I look snobby because I'm a little shy and I don't I don't always talk to people. Um, I go out alone by myself a lot uh, to bars and restaurants and everybody knows I don't cook. So I'm always going out. So people probably see me a lot. But I'm really happy to talk to people if they say hi. I just um, I can be kind of a shy person. So I'm not always aware of that. No, you you have a very no one says that to me. They just tell their friends, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, they're all texting after they bump into you, I guess. They're like, I just bumped into Megan Hunt. Well, I mean, you're, you're kind of a public persona in some ways, though, right? I mean, because, like, you're out, you're in the community all the time doing things. Well, I have this compulsion to sort of share about what I'm doing. And I think that that comes from just my age and really growing up on the Internet. Hmm. I'm part of the first generation that grew up with a computer in their home. You know, the, when I was born, we had a computer in our house. And that's unique for our generation because we're the first people who can really say that. And I grew up... Um, being on bulletin boards and forums online and chat rooms. And I started my first website when I was eight years old and in 1996. And so I've really grown up online and also been a part of this culture of sharing and amplifying what you're doing. And I was also part of the first generation of people then who could see what other people were doing all over the country. And I think that that's part of what made me love living in Nebraska so much is as a young kid who was creative and ambitious and smart, like I didn't have to go to another place in the world in order to be engaged and stimulated because um, I could find a lot of friends doing those kinds of things online. Mm-hmm. Um, you started a website and you were eight? You said? Yeah, I started What's a website when I was eight to share my poetry and short stories. Oh, that's awesome. I was really into writing poetry and my third grade teacher was very encouraging of that and she helped me submit some of my poems to magazines and anthologies for for kids and so that was the first teacher who I had who really encouraged my interests and skills that way. So my dad, who's like a computer programmer techie guy from the 80s, mm-hmm. he helped me start my first website when I was eight. And I had this HTML book, and that's how I learned how to do it all. And <laughs> Was um, it just one of those ones where it's like, you know, plain text, you know, white background? or It had a sidebar, oh, which nice. at the okay. time was like pretty slick. Oh, yeah. I remember making websites forever yes. ago, too. And it's like, oh, this is... Had a header and a sidebar <laughs> and a footer and this a body. This looks almost like every other <laughs> website. Yes. It was... Um, I also got my friends in school to submit poetry for my website. So oh. it was my poems and stories and then, you know, a dozen or so of my friends. And so you were entrepreneurial even then in some ways. You know what? That's a good observation. Maybe that is a little <laughs> bit of that entrepreneurial tendency. And, you know, I just I just want to have fun. I feel like life is short and I just want to do what I want to do. And I've I've always been careful against having like tunnel vision about a goal. Like here's what I want to be when I grow up. Here's where I want to be in five years. Because different opportunities come up and um if you're too focused on one goal, you kind of miss those opportunities when you could be doing something else that's really fun. I never meant to run for office. I didn't grow up thinking I was going to do something like that. Um, And since I got elected, I've met a lot of other elected officials where I asked them, you know, what made you decide to run? What made you want to get involved in politics? And I hear a lot of people say stuff like, oh, I just always thought I would, or I always thought I would be good politician. I always wanted to run for office. And I, I never wanted to run for office. I kind of wish I didn't feel like I had to run for office, but I mean, I knew there was going to be an open seat. I ran for an open seat, so mm-hmm. it you know there wasn't an incumbent when I ran, and I didn't see a lot of great people putting their hat in the ring, and I wasn't hearing a lot of buzz about in a, a candidate I would be excited about, and this was in 2015, so I was just coming off the um, work we were doing with Omaha Public Schools on comprehensive sex education. Mm-hmm. And my whole background is activism and entrepreneurship. And so um, I was used to activism and I was used to organizing. But that was the first kind of political win we got 
with sex education. And that was the first time that I started to think, maybe I should run for office. You know, I really enjoyed this work. I felt Mm -hmm. like I was successful with organizing. I love public speaking. And so maybe this is an avenue that I would I would be good at. Well, and the more you watch elected officials, you see you do not have to be a genius to run for office. What, so I, I thought I'd give it a try. <laughs> when you had that first political win, was it sort of like you got that window in and you were able to sort of see who you were up against in yeah, some ways? It really kind of took them off a pedestal for me mm-hmm. in a good way. And I want I don't want to be on a pedestal for anybody either. Like I don't want anybody to say about me or about any public official or politician that they admire or know about. Um you know, uh, oh, she's really hot shit, or she's like, you know, too big for her britches, or like she's someone who I could never go up and talk to. Because when I when I was getting involved in politics and I saw what other people were doing, um, a big reason I decided to get involved is I thought, well, what makes me think I can't do that? Mm-hmm. Everybody's just people. Nobody was born knowing this stuff. Everybody started green. Um, and you're never going to get good at it unless you give it a try. So don't be intimidated. Just, just get involved and, and give it a try. It's hard to have that confidence, though. I mean, to, to truly believe everybody's just a person, you know, they started out like that. It's, it's really easy, I feel like, to convince yourself somehow they had some, you know, head start that I, it's hard for me to catch up with. I think what people should do is pay attention. And I know this is a big ask because none of us have any time and none of us have any money and we're all burned out all the time. But watch a city council meeting or watch a school board meeting or watch especially the Nebraska legislature in session and all this stuff is streamed online and it's free so you could even be doing your dishes or working on your homework or doing your work at home and have this on in the background and you will really see that there are public servants in Nebraska who are doing an amazing job and working super hard but that maybe you're the kind of person that belongs with them, that you can fit in with them and you have something to contribute to. Because uh, when there's a live feed, you know, you see us make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You see me use the wrong word. You see me roll my eyes sometime. You know, it's just, it really humanizes what in the past was considered such like inaccessible work mm-hmm. to quote the public, unquote, to the normal people. And that's why I'm so obsessed with state and local politics is because this is where the normal people are. Like nobody paid for me to get elected. Nobody, you don't have to be rich to run for local office. Like these aren't like super elite folks. Mm-hmm. There are neighbors, there are teachers, there are, are faith leaders, like just normal people who decide to run for local office. And I think that until we build a bench locally, nothing is going to change in Congress or at the federal level. So right. I don't know what I'm going to go on to do, but if we don't have good people getting started locally... Um, this is where most of the change happens. So that's why it's important to me. Yeah, I've, I've seen you make that point several times on social media, mm-hmm. like why local, not federal. Yeah. Um, so if we take a step back before this, though, so like when you're a kid, you're, you know, you're making your website, you're writing poems and short stories. Were you thinking like when you're younger, did you want to be a writer? Is that what you thought, saw yourself as? Yeah. Okay. I, I wanted to be an artist. You know, I, I was always an artistic person. I thought I maybe want to be a painter. I don't know. But I was always a writer. So as I got a little bit older and started forming my ideas a little more about what I wanted to grow up to be, I wanted to be an investigative journalist okay. for a little while. That's something that I was really obsessed with in like junior high and high school. Um, and I also went through a little phase where I wanted to be a musician or like an orchestra conductor. Okay. That's yeah, what so I wanted to do. Lots of so, different interests. Yeah. But, but you kind of made the point earlier about getting my friends together to submit poems to my website and how right. that was entrepreneurial. I mean, orchestra conducting and composing – the independence of art creation and writing and um, how all of that has kind of a political nature as well. I mean, in hindsight, I can totally see how all of my interests kind of converged into me doing what I do today. And I never really thought about it like that before. (laughs) I've never talked about that stuff like in an interview before. So well, I'm glad glad we got that to come up. I mean, that's interesting. (laughs) Well, okay. Then I was reading on even just your website, the little in the bio, it says you coached forensics at some point too. Yeah. After, after college um, and a little bit during college, I coached speech and debate at Blair high school. And I did that for four years. Did Um, you like doing that? I loved it. I really, really loved it. I don't have any like teaching credentials. I didn't get a certification or degree or anything like that so Mm -hmm. there was only so much I could do in the public school system but I really loved working with 
high school age kids you can see their confidence develop so much mm-hmm. and even the really shy kids and I consider myself kind of a shy kid if you can put yourself in the body of a performer and just kind of detach from yourself a little bit and and perform a piece and that maybe has nothing to do with you the conclusions that that leads these kids to about who they are and where they come from and what their values are was really cool to watch. It was very formative for me. Yeah, I mean, I coached debate this last year, actually. And so, like, you know, I I think I know what you're talking about, where it's like you don't have to be extroverted to be able to channel your energy into however many minutes you need to be, you know, present in a very big way that performs in some way that's performative. And so it's like I feel like you see a lot of the kids, they do get this sense where it's like, I don't have to be a radically different person to be able to perform some task well where I'm almost like I'm changing who I am for a function, like, you know, whether it's a debate or a performance of whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, when you talked about vocabulary, it actually made me think. So it's like I, as a coach, I was specifically the congressional debate coach. And oh, so nice. the kids are terrified of congressional language. Yeah. And that was something where so many of them. Me too, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure that's what I want to ask about because it's like they, when you say to some kid who has no exposure to that world, you know, even in the debate realm, where it's like, "Hey, I think you'd be good at this." The first thing that deters them is, "I don't know what words to say." Mm-hmm. And beyond, like, beyond understanding anything that we're doing, if I don't know the words to say, I feel like I'm not good enough to do it. Seemed like a recurring theme that I ran into. Well, like I said, do you think anybody was born knowing the words to say? People think that. It's not, it doesn't make sense. Nobody knows that stuff. you got to learn it, and you just learn it by doing and messing up. And I learned a lot about the legislature by watching it. I watched it for years before I got elected. And so um, when I was going through our little, our little uh, what's the word, orientation, mm-hmm. like when we first get sworn in and, and they showing you around and how the buttons work and everything, I was really surprised by some of my colleagues who were like, well, how do I file an amendment? when's the right time to talk? And I'm just like, you guys have to watch the show. Then you're going to know all the words in the script. But it's, you just have to watch. Nobody was born knowing. It's not Jefferson and Lincoln down there. It's just normal people, whether that's on a podium doing a speech or in a classroom scenario doing a debate or in politics or whatever it is. Did you do speech and debate when you were in high school? I did speech. I did persuasive and uh, extemp. That's appropriate. That's coming in handy, I'm sure. Some skills there, right? Yeah. Extemporaneous speaking, I think everybody should do. My daughter, she's not talking on the mic, but she's sitting over here to my right. And she is, I'm going to be bullying her into extemporaneous speaking. Absolutely. (laughs) Because that's just one of those skills. So that's when they give you a topic and they give you three topics and you can choose which topic you want to talk about. And you have like 10 or 15 minutes to write a speech about that topic. That is really useful and important because you have to think fast you have to do research and you have to understand the research you've done and you have to get a little bit good at BSing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I did that in high school too. So yeah, that's exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that's always a bad thing. Um, and I don't think it's like lying. I'm not saying go lie to people, but being able to speak with confidence about, about something that people to, to send a message that people need to hear. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's important. I thought that's, yeah, for me, it wasn't like, it was just the confidence of pretending like I really knew what I was talking about in yep. extent was the <laughs> hardest part for me. It's smoke and mirrors. Right. And yeah. we do that in everything. Right. Yeah. yeah. I thought extent, I mean, that there were, that probably changed my entire approach to everything. Cause it's like, wow, there is, if you can sustain your focus for a short amount of time, but really just throw everything you have into something, you really can make yourself, you know, seem like you know it, or you can create a speech or you can create an argument. And I don't know, it, it's, I thought that was a great confidence booster doing extent. Was that something for you as well? Yep. Absolutely. Even like writing a paper, it's like, I can sit down and write a paper. I can make a speech in, you know, 20 minutes or whatever it was. It's also good for a kid who's like a little bit. ADD tendencies or a person where it's always something different and that's something I really love about this job too is my job is basically the same tasks but Mm -hmm. the topic is always different this year I introduced 19 bills and my colleagues all of us together introduced almost 800 bills and so when I get bored of property tax relief I can go read about energy codes and they're equally important Mm -hmm. and well to everybody they're not equally important but they're I have an equally important opportunity to learn about all these things I'm going to be voting on so Mm -hmm. You know, when you have some attention deficit tendencies, like it's a really great place to be professionally. Right. <laughs> well, it's OK. So you you were from Blair originally, right? That's okay. right. So when did you move to Omaha? I moved to Omaha when I was 18, uh, right after I graduated, although I was going to college in Blair. OK, you were commuting. That's right. I went to Dana College in Blair, but I moved to Omaha um, 
pretty much right after high school. And I was working at Homer's, the record store. Oh, okay. And I also worked at KFAB um, as a intern producing the Drive Time Show. On That's KFAB. cool. So yeah. were you always into radio then too? Yes. I, I've always loved amateur radio, talk radio. For a while I thought I might be a talk radio host. I mean, um, yeah. So that was kind of a dream job for me at the time. And so, okay, so you... You're channeling kind of your energy into. Was, were you really into music as well? Were you mm-hmm. creating? You were creating music in addition yeah. to learning homers. Going into college, I was kind of deciding what I was going to focus on. Right, like I started out as an education major, and I tried English, and I ended up getting uh, degrees in intercultural communication and German language. And I spent some time in Berlin teaching English, actually. Oh, cool. yeah. But I thought I might be an orchestra conductor. I thought I might be getting into music. I thought I'd get into radio. I have a radio minor, so I oh, did nice. do some radio. You should be running the board, not me. Oh, I don't remember anything <laughs> about that. <laughs> I did a college it radio show. It fades from memory. My freshman year. And I, I didn't, I never actually studied radio. I just was always into it too. And then I saw that you could apply to have your own college radio show. And so I was at UNL. Who wouldn't do that? Yeah. Yeah, I was like, what? everyone I talked to was like, wait, why do you want to do that? And I was like, why wouldn't everyone do this? And so I remember I went in there and I think they just assumed I must have some sort of broadcasting background or I must have looked confident when they went in there and explained there you it. Because I was it. like, I don't know any, <laughs> they didn't explain anything about the board or how to do it. So I remember I get on to do my first show and just all the volume knobs were down and I had no idea what it was that like uh. why can't why are we not broadcasting what's happening I messed with it for like 20 minutes but it, it was one of those things where it's like yeah I guess sometimes you just need to look dumb so they explain something to you yes in high school I was also a sound engineer like in our drama department and I I traveled with a couple singing groups through choir because I was not like a choral performer I, I didn't I wasn't a confident singer, but I was a sound engineer. And so I would do all of that for them when we traveled. And so when I got into radio in college, that was a good background to have. But I'm mildly conversant with a board, but it would I would need to get a refresher for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, at least you could ask somebody before you're just like, yeah, I'll just do that. Yeah. Like me, apparently. I'm just like, well, yeah, I'll Well, now we I'll can just look out. at YouTube. Right. Now yeah, you just true. watch a video online and you can do anything. But right. At the time, I had no idea. <laughs> So when you were working at Homer's and then you got your degree, intercultural communication, where did that fall? Like, how did that become the focus? Well, you know, if I'm being honest, it was probably a situation like that was what I had the most credits to get. So let's just finish that degree and so that I can be done in four years and get out of here. I I went to a small liberal arts school. It's no longer around. The school closed about nine years ago. And... You know, sometimes I regret not going to a bigger university. I think I would have gotten a very different educational experience. But that small liberal arts education, um, it was it was a lot of philosophy. It was a lot of psychology in every class. Mm -hmm. Very small class sizes. I still have great relationships with my professors from there that I probably wouldn't have if I'd gone to a bigger university. But it's not like intercultural communication was my passion. So that's what I graduated with. And I thought I'd have a career in that. I always knew I'd have a career in entrepreneurship. I didn't think that I would actually use that degree in my career, but I did think that it gave me interesting theoretical framework for life. I thought it gave me, um, I grew a lot in my maturity. It just like teaches that. you how to think sometimes. I think yeah. when you look, look at some of that stuff. If I had to do it again, I'd probably do it differently, but, but that's how I ended up using my degree is just kind of giving me that framework for everything else I ended up doing. But you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur at that point? Mm-hmm. How did yeah. that happen? Well, I was I was making wedding bouquets and dresses for my friends. And people kept telling me, you know, you should start a business. You should really sell these. And I think that's the way a lot of businesses start. This was in 2005. So okay. this was, I was 18 or 19. And... So I did. I I started a website and I was blogging quite a bit, which I had a background in because from the internet, like we said, and magazines started picking up what I was doing. Bigger wedding blogs started picking up what I was doing. Martha Stewart featured me. How old were you when they were starting to get featured? Like 20. Okay. So it's around the same time then. Yeah. Okay. it, It happened pretty fast. And so... I, I started to have like a little bit of a following and people following me on social media as that started to grow. And there are still people now who comment on my Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and they say, I've been following you since you were making wedding dresses and before you got married and before you had Alice and before you got divorced and before you went for off, you know, <laughs> like they follow this whole part of your life. And that's something that I feel really honored and 
about but that I do to other people too like there's Mm -hmm. also people that I followed for years and years and um, so all the things that I I did through entrepreneurship I grew that business to be a staff of 12 and we worked with over 400 brides a year then I started a co-working space in Omaha in 2010 and then in 2012 I started Hello Holiday, which is a company that supports independent fashion designers all over the world today. And that's been my main focus as an entrepreneur. And it just pays the bills. You know, it doesn't, I don't make a lot of money. I just pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And to me, the most important thing is not making money, but having freedom. And if I have enough to pay the bills, then that gives me the freedom to do all this political work, all this activist work that's led me to where I am today um, in local politics, which is what I hope I hope that this becomes my career trajectory for the next 10 or 20 years because I really really enjoy it whether I'm elected or I'm helping other people get elected that's what I want to do right well and I mean I think one of, it seems like one of the scariest parts of having the entrepreneurial instinct though is can I get to the point where it does pay the bills right oh it's so scary it's got to be it was easier it was easier of course when I was married because we had two incomes and mm-hmm. so he was a student at the time uh, he was planning to go to medical school and so you know, we were both really young and figuring it out and not making much money anyway. But now that I'm single and I don't have another income in my household, it is a lot scarier. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me a lot more nervous for the future. Definitely. Do you, do you think that by sort of having the social media presence and sort of sharing your story that helps sort of keep things safe because it's like people you become your own brand in some way? I don't know. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I know that that's valuable, but I can't buy groceries with that. You know what I mean? That's true. I yeah. know that it's valuable, but I almost don't know. I almost don't understand how to translate that into a career or mm-hmm. into anything that can sustain me in a meaningful way. Um, like having a lot of followers on social media. So what could I do? I could get juice companies and diet pills sent to me. And then I do p- posts about how, you know, look how great this lipstick looks. I use this sunscreen. It changed my life. Like that's bullshit. Right. I don't like <laughs> seeing people do that. It's, right. It's not honest. It's peddling, you know, your influence and your followers. It's trading your followers that you've gained organically and authentically for, you know, $20 here, $50 there. And I don't really think that's sustainable. That's not something, if I did that today, okay, that's fine. No no judgment, no shade. Like, do what you need to get by. Mm-hmm. But that's not something I can grow into a career for the next five or ten years. Sure. Or maybe it is, and I just don't see it, and I don't understand how. Because there's a lot of people doing much smarter things than I am with social media. But I also think that just ethically, you know, as an elected official, I don't know if it's right for me to monetize my brand, so to speak, or or any of my my power that I can wield on social media. I just have to use that really judiciously for causes that matter to me. And none of that gives me money. It's nice that you have, you know, some elected officials don't seem to think about the ethical questions, so it's got to be nice, you know. Well, a lot of people bring up the ethical question for me. I mean, I think that sometimes, so I'm on the far left, honestly, and sometimes when when you're on more of a fringe, I, I, see, I see people in Omaha especially and in Nebraska, they're more critical of people like me on the far left sometimes than they are of moderates, to say nothing of people on the far right who we all just don't like, but... They just write them off. Right, then... kind of. And so I feel sometimes like more eyes are on me and people are waiting for me to mess up. And so I think really hard about those ethical questions and how's this going to make me look? What are the optics? How do I convey what I really meant to say and the outcome I really meant to have? Because it's the people on the far left who say, oh, we have to hold our elected officials accountable. Well, they're talking about me. And it's like, guys, I'm trying to do right by you. Don't worry. But, you know, boy, they hold me accountable. And it's good. But I want to see them do that more for other politicians, too. Yeah, that's fair. What was the formation of your political ideology? When did that start to become cohesive? When I was growing up, I was very conservative. I was raised, um, it wasn't like a very religious, it wasn't like an evangelical situation. But, um, you know, my parents are Midwestern Republicans. They Mm -hmm. still are pretty moderate people. I'm sure that's the Norman Blair. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I wouldn't call them racist. They're totally accepting of LGBTQ stuff. Like, just just average white Midwestern folks, I would say. Mm-hmm. No malice, nothing wrong. I love them so much. They're great. They raised me well. But um, I kind of took on a pretty conservative mindset 
in high school. And maybe it was the people I was hanging out with. I don't know. But I didn't start to kind of shed that off until I went to college. And I had professors who challenged me. And making friends in my 20s made me start thinking differently about things. Uh, you said you're always into talk radio. Was that yeah. part of it? Oh, yeah. You know, okay. listening to that conservative talk radio, like that really starts to reinforce beliefs that I no longer hold at all. And I'll also say that conservative talk radio has really gone off the rails. It's really gone from conservative commentary on news, on factual news, to entertainment. Right. You know, they're just they're just promoting Breitbart. They're promoting all of these things that are literally not true. When Rush Limbaugh got into all the birther stuff about Barack Obama, I was far away from conservative ideology at that time. But I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, was it ever about conservatism? Was it ever about, quote, fiscal responsibility and yeah. individual liberty? Because I believe in individual liberty, and that makes me a progressive in my mind. Oh, um, yeah, I've thought about this, too. It's just It seems like you really don't actually have much true conservative philosophy on the right, right. in the country at all. I would, you know, everybody says this in Nebraska, but Senator John McAllister, who uh, represents District 20 in the legislature, he's a Republican, and he's got some ideas I don't agree with, you know, too too far right for me on some things. But he's always there for LGBTQ people when we vote. He's there for a woman's right to choose when we vote. Um, he's supporting immigrants and refugees. He's one of, I, I don't want to say only because I don't want to be wrong, but he's the only senator and local elected official I've seen on the Republican side say anything about ICE, say anything about family separations. And I think that 15 years ago, Every Republican would have been like this. They all would have had this outcry. You know, he's like my parents. Just, you know, I'm just Republican. I'm from Nebraska. But mm. um, actually having that integrity, that moral integrity, is something that has left that party as far as I can see. Why do you think it's left the party? Oh, boy, I really don't know. I, I think that so much, so much entertainment, you know, has come into the voices that were leading the conservative party, Sean Hannity, um, Laura Ingram, Rush Limbaugh, certainly Glenn Beck. And it's no longer about morality or integrity. It's just about entertainment. And I also think that there's this anti-intellectualism that has been a real problem in our entire country where it's really not cool to be smart. It's really not cool to question what's going on. It's snobby. It's elitist. It's pretentious. And that has been a real disservice to the dialogue and the 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 level of conversations that we're having in this country have been dumbed down so much that now the dumbest possible level of conversation is in the White House. Right. Yeah. So Hamburger. I don't be, I don't blame them for for changing so much, but I I hope that it doesn't reflect how most people really feel. I think that when I talk to one conservative it's great, and we have a great conversation. As a whole, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know right. how, as a block, they are making such mistakes. Um, but when I look at stuff like the tipped minimum wage, which is 213 in Nebraska, our minimum wage is very low. The tariffs that, that the Trump administration has brought into Nebraska that have affected our farmers so adversely. The floods that you know, we can't draw a straight line to climate change, but we know that if we don't address climate change, situations for farmers are just going to get worse. But why are they voting for people who are perpetuating these policies? It's not in your best interest. So this is something I'm still trying to unravel and figure out. Well, this is something that makes me think, I mean, I, I'm curious if you think that the the system we have where it's so divided into two parties, is that actually helpful for our politics? No. It, because it seems like it's just the easiest way to not really listen to what anybody says and then just vilify whoever you don't personally identify with. Not that, I mean, there are some perks, I'm sure, but it's like, overall, would it be better if we didn't have a system of two parties? I am not a very partisan person. And that surprises some people because I am a very leftist person. But at the same time, I'm not super loyal to the Democratic Party, for example. I just, and everybody thinks of themselves that way, right? Like, when you talk to anybody, they all want to be thought of as like, well, I'm an independent thinker and I'm a... I'm independent-minded. I don't really have any loyalty. But when you look at, I think a big part of the problem, and you've probably heard me talk about this, is the type of people who decide to run. 
So much of the problems that are happening in policy is because we have the wrong people running for office. Think about a continuum. Think about a graph that goes from like one to 10. And five is like a real moderate, a true independent. And a 10 over here is a hard right conservative. And a one is a far left, you know, progressive. And the people who are on the far left and the far right have the most motivation to run for office because they feel like they have the most to lose. Me being on the far left, I'm really upset because everybody is to the right of me. And people on the far right are upset because everybody's to the left of them. And nobody in the middle has as much of a stake. And when you look at the cost of running for office, the low pay that elected officials get, the public scrutiny that your family goes through, there's not a lot of incentives for normal average folks to run for office. But there's a lot of incentives for people on the extremes to run for office because they feel like they have so much to lose ideologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people get more and more polarized to get elected because it's just the the extremes running against each other. We, we very rarely see moderate candidates anymore. So once again, at the local level, that's where we can really fix that is our school boards, our city councils, our mayors. That's where we can elect some moderate people and, and see where we can get them from there. Do you think, I mean, in terms of the way they vote in the state legislature, is it often down to party lines or is it independent in some ways? I think that our, our Nebraska legislature is very independent. And I think that it's a laboratory that I wish more thought leaders in the country would look at as an example of nonpartisan progress. We are, of course, partisan people. Everybody is registered under a political party in the legislature. Everyone has their own beliefs. But this is the only legislature where we tend to caucus more on issues than by party because we have no party leadership. We don't have any aisles. We don't have any caucuses. We don't have any majority or minority leader. And we're the only legislature where that's true. So I wish that more researchers at Stanford or Harvard or all these places where they're doing research about political division and how are we going to heal the country and blah, blah, blah. We're kind of doing that in Nebraska now. And (laughs) we're a red state, but there is no other state in the country where a young, progressive, bisexual, atheist, single mother like me could get elected and immediately be a vice chair of a committee and bring 19 bills and they all get a hearing and most of them make it to the floor and we and I pass a bill and we have robust debates like usually you have to work your way all the way up to get that if you even get in the room in the first place Mm -hmm. so in Nebraska even though we are a conservative state we have more opportunities for independent leadership for people on all sides than they have in other states and I think that makes us it gives us a really interesting, puts us in an interesting position. And that's also why I'm so defensive of our institution, of our nonpartisan unicameral. And I know the governor has talked about wanting to make it a, a two-house system like other states, uh, wants it to be partisan instead of nonpartisan. And no matter who it is in the governor's seat, I think we have to be very careful and protective against that. Um, because when I can, when we can wrap up session and I can go get dinner and a drink with three Republicans and we have a really great time, I wouldn't want that to go away. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that would be good for Nebraska. Well, it seems infantile to make that go away just to have party lines, right? I mean, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm not understanding something that well, but like I, it seems like the two-party system primarily exists just because it's easier for money to go places more than anything else, right? That makes sense to me. Yeah, that's an explanation I would buy. I don't, I didn't write the book, you know, I'm not sure. I did a Senate internship when I was in grad school because it was almost in some ways like I wanted to I wanted to understand uh, basically it's like I don't get the Republican mindset and I come from a conservative family, too. And it's like just something about it isn't clicking for me. I don't get it. And so I was like, okay, it was a four month internship. I thought, all right, I'll just see if I can make this make sense to me ideologically. And my joke about it's usually like I felt like in like those old racist adventure novels where it's like I'm going to go live with the savages and see what I learned (laughs) from them. And so my time there, I mean. It wasn't really anything ideological is what I got. And so like I, you know, got to talk to Ben Sass's whole staff and everything. And it's just like they're not really operating in terms of ideology from what I could tell. And, you know, it's kind of just like this is the easiest way to get through the day. Here's, you know, it seems like Mitch McConnell's not going to yell at him if he votes one way or another. And like there were literally times it's like, oh, Mitch McConnell's office called and he's mad about something. And it's like I'm in here as this is happening. It just seems like that's not. So what? What's he going to do? Fire you? This doesn't seem like a healthy way to run the country right here. I think I said that to our speaker of the legislature once. He was like, 
don't know if I like that. And I go, then fire me. (laughs) That's just a joke we have. But I'm joking, but it's right. It's true, right? Like people have to stand up to leadership or else we just get a bunch of yes men voting the way their party leaders tell them to vote. And I think that the legislature is better in Nebraska because we have party leadership out of the body. Um, There's no reward for fundraising. Mm -hmm. There's no... You know, no one's holding anything over my head unless I deliver something to the party. It also, in a way, it gives me more affinity to the party, too, because I feel like they aren't trying to mess up what I'm trying to do with my own agenda. Right. Well, yeah, it seems like a lot of the federal level is you don't really get to have that much of a personal agenda. Absolutely. So why would I want to be involved in something like that? Like, oh, my gosh, they would keep me down and I would have no fun. (laughs) So it's not for me, but we're going to fix Nebraska. (laughs) Well, it seems like you've got a good story for why we should be optimistic about what Nebraska can look like in the future, too. I mean, it's like it, it, for a system that is not, you know, maybe has less room for the type of corruption you see at the federal level. Is that? I mean, would you say that's a fair characterization? I think that is a fair characterization. I can't speak to running for Congress or the U.S. Senate, but I think that that's very true at the local level. I also think that, you know, I think it's very important for me to 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 acknowledge my privilege. I'm white, I'm cisgender, I'm a woman, I look like a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I have a lot of intersections of, of difference and struggle for sure, I can get into any room and most people think I belong there. Like no, no doors have been shut in my face because of how I look and that's not true for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so loving where I live and being able to be successful where I live in this red state, I feel like I really have a responsibility for the people who don't really have a choice, who can't move away, who can't, you know, go move to Portland or Denver or what all the progressives in (laughs) Omaha like to do. Because I would like to serve in the legislature with like a Muslim person or a Jewish person. You believe we've never had a Jewish senator? Like explain that. Yeah, come on. Um, You know, more people of color we definitely need. But I feel like if I can if I can get those people up on the platform with me by using my power to open those doors, um, I have to stay in Nebraska and do that. Like I can't move to Portland or San Francisco or whatever until I feel like I've done something here for those people. Do you find that are people responsive to you saying that or are they insistent that you move to a, a bigger level or a bigger platform? No, people are cool with that. Okay, that's good. They're <laughs> like, you stay where you are, Megan. That's fine with us. <laughs> Now, was you were? Are you, I assume are you the first atheist in our legis- our state legislature? Uh, Ernie's an atheist. Is Senator he? Okay. Chambers. That makes yeah. sense. Okay. He well, has he ever said he's an atheist? He's definitely an atheist. I'll say that. But <laughs> I wouldn't surprise I, me. It doesn't surprise know, me to hear that. But. He might not claim the label, and I don't really care to either. I'm not. I'm not a person of faith. You know, I'll right, say yeah. that because sometimes people hear atheist and they think you hate God, you right. hate religion, and the truth is, I don't hate religion. I. I have not found faith on my own personal journey. If mm-hmm. you have, that's none of my business. Good for you. I don't think it has any place in government. I don't think that government should be taking any position on matters of faith. Um, and I'll be a, a staunch defender against that. But if you're religious, good for you. None of my business. Well, th- that stance is one of the, that's a good example of something where that seems like ideologically a conservative stance, like just an individual choice, yeah. whatever. It shouldn't matter that much. Um, but it, it is something that seems like in Nebraska in particular, that probably got blown out of proportion in some way. Or did you did you encounter many problems with that as a label being thrown at you? Not in the campaign. Um, I didn't lead with that in the campaign. Right. Uh, next time. Let's see what happens, <laughs> I guess. But no, the, a great thing about our legislature, too, is it's only 49 people. So it's really easy to get to know everybody. And I feel confident that almost all of my colleagues, if someone said to them back home in western Nebraska, so what's it like working with Megan? I hear she's an atheist or bisexual or whatever. They would go, oh, she's really nice. She's just a normal lady. And it's because we have the opportunity to form those relationships and become close because it's a small body because we don't have partisanship. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a really important thing, like I said, to – to serve Nebraska because we're not in there fighting over our per individual personalities. Right. We're fighting over legislation, which is what we should be doing. Right. I mean, in some ways it depresses me that in 2019, you, you know, you have to explain like, oh, this bisexual atheist person is just a human like like anybody it's else. It's like but, the most boring thing about me. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like that's uh, it. We shouldn't have to be something where you have to go back and say, oh, she's nice. She's a human like anyone else. But I mean, in some ways also, I'm sure that's inspiring to all sorts of people across the state that someone like you is able to get elected and not make it a big deal, really. 
Well, if they're inspired, they should run for office too. And if they don't know where to start, they should reach out to me because I'd love to help. But probably the weirdest thing someone said to me was like, well, if you don't believe in God, then how do you know right from wrong? And it's like, do you, do you, do you want to talk about your, <laughs> I, yeah, uh, in Nebraska, I think that's a really common stance. It's like, you can't have any sort of morality or ethics unless you are religious. Right. Like. Are you saying that if you weren't religious, you would be out murdering people? And, I mean, that's the implication. What do you then? Maybe you should be staying religious because it sounds like it's important to <laughs> yeah, you. You need it. Keep you out of jail. No, we know that that's not true. So well, I kind of lost funny the, thing to say. the thread a little bit. So Sorry. when you're when you're younger uh, and you were going from someone who's more conservative, when did you turn into somebody who was a little bit more left leaning? And then I assume atheism came a little bit later as well. I think I was always kind of an atheist. Okay, it just it wasn't sticking. Religion, it was like Santa it? Claus to me, even okay. as a kid. Yeah, yeah, I was always that way. But um, no, it was after after college. I met I met a lot of the friends that I have now, and had a lot of debates online. You know, a lot of do you were you ever part of this online community called Slam Omaha? I don't know. Do you remember Slam? It stood for it, Support Local Arts and Music. Yeah, I'm kind of familiar with it, but I wasn't really a part of it. It or was like a very early web forum um and it was just omaha and there were all these different you know forums where you could go talk about stuff and there was one forum called cool talk and in cool talk that's where we talked about politics and i learned so much from those people just reading threads and my logic being challenged in ways that it never has and it's a reminder to myself that like my positions can still change on things Mm -hmm. but as long as you know why you believe something that's okay. Like right. I'll kind of accept what you're thinking as long as you can explain it to me why. And more people really need to be reflecting on that and asking themselves why. Um, but it was through that process that I think I became more left leaning. Well, yeah, and that's something that you'd hope that every single elected official can explain why they, you know, think what they think. Well, then the question then becomes like, okay, so if they have their own cohesive reasons why they believe what they believe, do they vote the way that they believe is another question. And why? Well, that's it- the question, right? I mean, are we... Is it a, uh, am I a delegate of the people? Am I in the legislature to vote the way 51% of my constituents want? Or was I elected as a trustee where they say, Megan, we know how you feel about things. I agree with 51% of what you think. So you go down there and do your best for us. And we trust you to do that. That's a debate that's been going on, you know, since forever mm-hmm. in, in world politics is, am I there to, to vote? the way most people want me to vote or am I there to use my reason and my experience and my best judgment um, with information that sometimes constituents don't necessarily have when you're when you're in there in the room voting Um, and that tends to be more of my philosophy is I was elected by people I was unusually transparent as a candidate about any controversial position I had, death penalty, immigration, abortion. I talked openly about what what legislation I was planning to bring, and I brought it. So I feel like since I represented to my voters what I was going to do, and they elected me anyway, I should probably go in and do that. Right, because they voted for you and what right. you stand for, and there's you know you're not tricking them. But look at campaigns. Not not all not all can- candidates do that. You know, right. it's more. I support small businesses and families. Okay, what the fuck does that mean? You go in there and. And you're doing something that, to me, does not support small businesses and families, but that's your opinion. Right, it's your soundbite. Yeah, just giving people more concrete examples of what it is I'm going to represent and do. um, It gives me a lot more confidence to work as a trustee rather than a delegate representative. And so, okay, so the first year, how do you feel about what you were able to accomplish so far? I left the session feeling pretty depressed. I felt pretty ineffective. I felt like... Did any of this even end up mattering? And as time has gone by, what I hoped would happen has happened, which is I see that I accomplished a lot from my first year in the legislature. We we organized support and testimony for all of our bills. We filled up the room. We activated the public. Um, I made friends with my colleagues, which I know will pay dividends down the road and, and success for myself. I had the opportunity to participate in all these different continuing education opportunities. I just finished a course at Harvard that I took last um, month that's going to be great for me going forward. I got to go to China with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, which is going to be a great experience going forward. And I did pass a bill. I passed LB450, which updated Nebraska's energy codes. And you know what? The bill kind of flew under the radar. 
and skated by and we had a really robust debate on the final on the final round of voting but it passed and now nebraska has the most progressive energy code of any state in the country and so that is a huge accomplishment and that's going to be that's going to leave a legacy for generations of green energy and sustainability that it's not a sexy bill it's not splashy but it's a really impactful one and i should be proud of that we're also doing seven different interim studies on topics ranging from food insecurity to um, religious refusals in hospitals and uh, foster children's rights. And so I'm going to be really prepared next session for even more bills. So as far as the energy codes go, I'm curious if... I mean, like, do you would you say that the state legislature is generally uh, like are are they open to green energy? Are they environmentally conscious? Because like the general you know idea in a red state is like, oh, they're not really going to be in favor of really addressing climate change in any way or really being environmentally friendly in terms of the way the legislation works. But it, would you say that that's true? Are they more open to that? I think that we're more open to it in Nebraska because we have such an important agricultural community. And I think that most farmers understand that we have to be stewards of the earth. That's something that my colleagues understand as well. So while maybe there's skepticism about the origin of climate change, is it because we're driving Hummers or is it because we're just in a cycle of climate and this is natural on earth? Everybody kind of agrees that we have to do something to support farmers. So that is a great starting point for having conversations about sustainability and what we can do to uh, mitigate the effects of climate change, whatever's causing it. Mm-hmm. We agree that we have to do something. Um, Patty Pansing-Brooks, Senator Pansing-Brooks, has a great um, – she's doing a study about creating a climate change commission in Nebraska that's going to be making recommendations ongoing for for – impact reduction on the climate. I think that's a great thing. And that's one of those incremental things that maybe people on the far right can kind of come to the middle and say, okay, let's see what the experts have to say. Let's see what the data is showing us and move from there. But these things like energy codes, not exciting, but going to have a big impact for sure. Right. I mean, it seems like I've, from my experience talking to people who are more on the right, verbally you can get them to agree that taking precautions to you know protect the environment they they generally go along with that but it mm-hmm. seems like you know the second it turns into a climate change argument then they shut down because i don't know al gore or something i'm not really sure right. where the breakdown is but right. it, like they don't seem to disagree with the general you know steps that might be taken or the benefit that that might have would you agree with that or am i am i overgeneralizing here i agree i think it, it is really too bad how politicized it's become because, you know, science doesn't care if you're right. blue or red or left or right. It's just going to keep going on. So that's where we have an opportunity in these one-on-one conversations to get to the heart of what their um, reticence is. Like, mm-hmm. what is your opposition to, to something like this? Is it because you hate Al Gore? Okay, can we set that aside? Like. Right. Can, okay, I hate Al Gore too for the purposes of this conversation. Like, okay, can we agree on that? And now let's talk right. about climate change. Whatever you have to do to get to what is our disagreement really about. Right. Um, that's a that's a tactic that I really hope to get better at in the future years in the legislature too. Is making sure that we're talking about the actual problem and not just our political feelings around a problem. That seems like a great goal in general for politics. Yeah, we'll see what happens, you know, <laughs> best intentions. <laughs> so for second year then, I mean, at this point, are you already working on what you'll do for the next session or is that something that starts, you know, next year? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm working on a suite of bills to address, sorry, I'm just dropping stuff on the counter. I had someone I'm, kick the table <laughs> and spill a beer all over oh, one no. time. So you're, yeah, you're fine. Don't worry. At least I haven't done that. <laughs> no. So we're working on a bunch of stuff around food insecurity. So expanding access to SNAP, um, making it easier for seniors and, and especially senior veterans to apply and receive SNAP. There's a lot of recertification processes in Nebraska for SNAP that are not federally mandated that really cause a lot of friction in the system and make it harder for people to get the benefits they're entitled to. So getting rid of some of that red tape and bureaucracy, um, expanding access to SNAP in for First Nations on Native American reservations, and uh, just looking generally at food insecurity across the state is what we're spending the next six months working on, and that will 
turn into five or six bills next year. So like, okay, what's the process of working on that? Is it just doing a lot of research? A lot of research. And a lot of that is partnerships with other organizations in Nebraska. So working with Nebraska Appleseed quite a bit on that, Heartland Food Bank, Together Omaha, all of these organizations are important because they already have the infrastructure and the data that I need to make good decisions about this. So I feel like a channel for policy to flow through Mm -hmm. that they are helping me inform and understand because they've been on the ground for decades working on this exact thing. So they have an opportunity through me to do something about it legislatively. So that's what I'm trying to channel. But I also have to totally understand it. And I have my own ideas that I'm bringing to it too. Right. So it's a lot of community partnerships. I'm not doing any of this alone. I also have an, an excellent staff in my office. I'm really proud of our staff because they do great research. They are great writers. Um, they're great at reaching out to leaders in the community to help us do this. So yeah, it's, it's not just me. It's a big effort. Right. Yeah. Well, you describe it all very well. I mean, in terms of like making sure that you don't take all the credit for it even, and I'm sure that you're doing all sorts of work. I mean, you say it's sort of like, you know, they're enacting policy almost through you, but it's like you have to actually be the one who's doing it and making it happen in some ways. It is so lonely on the floor when you are, it's lonely and scary when you've worked with dozens, maybe hundreds of people from uh, clients to organization leaders, to testifiers, to activists who've sent you emails and tweets. And then you're on the floor and they say, Senator Hunt, you're invited to introduce. And you have 10 minutes and you're like, oh, wait, what am I talking about? <laughs> and, and you're just thinking about all these people who are depending on you to do a good job. And um, another thing I do is I delegate, you know, one or two of my friends in the body who are supportive to like go as I'm talking because no one listens to me when I'm talking. Go talk to our colleagues and see who has questions. See who's nervous about this. See who doesn't get it. What are they doing when you're talking? Oh, playing on their phone, working on their own things. And listen, I'm not innocent here. I mean, the the days get long. And usually by the time something gets to the floor, people have already made up their mind about it because it's been through committee. Um, People have been gossiping about it around the water cooler. Like most stuff doesn't get to the floor um, that you haven't already made up your mind about. Okay. Um, But I do, I do like to see my colleagues listening and, considering new information and one thing my office does is we make just a one pager just a quick information page about every bill that we bring to the floor so that they can look at that and maybe we put new information on there um but yeah the, the process is i introduce the bill i have my friends going through making sure no one has a problem do my vote count um sometimes people will, will burn up time and i'll say you know senator hansen senator kavanaugh Senator Lathrop, can any of you just take five minutes on this so I can go talk to Senator Brewer and make sure that he gets what we're talking about? And it's very orchestrated mm-hmm. in a way that you you I did not understand until I got there. Well, I it was sounds not like prepared. You've got to be like 110% present and aware yes. of 500 different things going on at once. It's very exhausting. It's very mentally exhausting because you have to almost listen. You have to be speaking and communicating cogently, but you have to be listening to everybody else at the same time all day long right is that takes a lot out of you is there a like an addiction to that in some way like the high you get from that where it's like i have to be there so much and like you know in our world it's so easy to be in 500 places at once right? and like you know you're kind of like not really there for any you know, you're on your phone you're watching tv or whatever but like i find that in some ways it's easy to get addicted to something where it's like you know i have to be here and use 100 percent of what i have right now for me it's an absolute high yeah. yeah i really love it i really think i'm good at it and to feel the adrenaline of being in that moment is really addictive. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. When Ernie Chambers talks, does everyone listen? No, oh, no. He, he seems so entertaining from what I've seen. You of know, him. it depends. Um, if we don't expect him to talk, then everybody listens. <laughs> but if it's like, well, there's Ernie going off about the flag being a rag and this or that. Like, no yeah. one listens to that because everybody's heard that. Yeah. Everybody's heard that so many times. You start to hear the the best of, you know, he's playing the hits. And I think we even say that, like, what's he talking about? He's playing the hits. Okay. It's, and sometimes that is strategic, kind of like I mentioned, because maybe on the side we have to figure out a deal. Or maybe someone doesn't understand something and we need five more minutes to explain it to them so they can make up their mind. Good old Ernie is going to take up the time if we need him to. And right. there's a definite function for that in the body. And sometimes when you're watching at home, it looks like wasting time. 
because you can't see the rest of the room and see what people are doing. But I will assure listeners, we are not wasting time. We're taking the time we need to do it right. And Ernie is a tool that we can use to do that. Was he somebody that you idolized at all before you got into the Senate? I admire him very much. Yeah. When I, I think he's the best public servant in the history of our state. And when the clerk of the legislature asked us where we'd like to sit, I said, I want to sit near Ernie Chambers and I want to sit around Republicans because I wanted to learn from Ernie and I wanted to make friends with the Republicans. And sure enough, I sit right in front of Ernie, flanked by six other Republicans. So. <laughs> Is it working out the yes. way you hoped it would? Yes, oh, they've good. become good friends of mine. And I, I like them quite a bit. You know, I could have gone in if I was sitting far away from them. I'm sure that I would have sat much more comfortably with my stereotypes about them. But sitting by them, you know, I learned that Senator Tom Brandt loves the movie Mean Girls. And so he can quote Mean Girls to me all day. I learned that Senator Friesen cares about property tax relief because he's a farmer and because he has seen his neighbors lose their farms because they pay more in taxes than they make. And these types of conversations have made me, you know, I learned that Senator Arch, who sits next to me, he used to be a marriage counselor. So these little insights you get about people, it softens them to me quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And that goes both ways. Like, I think that any stereotypes they would have had about me have been lessened by being my neighbor. Right. Yeah. And it's a very important thing for our body to have. There's so many things that make me optimistic about the way it works from hearing you talk about this. It's really, you that's know, good. <laughs> I feel like most conversations when it gets to the political element, it just gets so down and depressing. And I don't know, you, you're making me feel good about it all. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> that's, that's a good outcome, I think. Well, okay. And so, uh, as far as my last couple of questions, I know Alice is getting a little restless here, but sorry, it's not more. <laughs> she's been doing, so we were in China and she got really into Chinese. And so she's been working on this Chinese language workbook. Wow. And one of our friends from China is coming to visit us this week and we're going to take her to some good restaurants in district eight, but That's exciting. Alice has to brush up on her Chinese. So she <laughs> looks impressive. Chinese <laughs> seems very hard to me. So yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. Me too. I learned like three words and <laughs> I consider myself a smart person. So it's really hard. I'm impressed that she's learning so much. Yeah. Uh, I won't, yeah, I won't keep you too much longer, but I do want to ask. So, okay. I know, you know, you don't have, it's not an incredibly short uh, term, but how much pressure is there already to start to figure out like a reelection campaign and how much energy does that take away from just doing your job? I have not started thinking about reelection. And listen, I'm saying this now, so I reserve the right to act totally different in two years when I'm up. But um, so we, we serve four year terms and we can do two terms. So I have eight years maybe to get everything done that I want to do. Um, so as soon as I got into the body, I felt like I was on the clock. I felt like it was a race to be as effective as, a pos as possible as soon as possible. So I kind of feel like I look at my numbers from my election. They were pretty good. And I feel like if I do a good job, if I, if I keep having these town halls every two months like I do, if I keep doing these podcast conversations like I do, if I keep going to restaurants and getting seen by your friends – that's they keep bumping into you. That's great. I mean, right. that's great for my reelection. It's just doing what I do anyway. And I feel like plus the door knocking, plus the canvassing, which of course I'll be doing when it's time. Mm -hmm. Um, if people don't want to reelect me, that's not really my business. Right. If I've done my best and I've done my best to engage with the people who put their trust in me and they weren't happy with that, then then don't vote for me. That's okay. I'm I'm at peace with that. So I'm doing my best and uh, people are going to tell me what they think about that when it's time to vote. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a refreshing, I don't know, you have such a refreshing approach to all this. You're like sweet, I said, it you. continues to just make me happy about it all. <laughs> so, okay, my last question for you. So if, if somebody wants to either support you or, you know, even if they're interested in running a campaign similar to yours, what advice do you have for people just in general about the political state in the future? I think that you need to forget your stereotypes, forget what you think you know about how things are done and do what feels right to you. Um, it's very, I think it's a very good idea to volunteer for a candidate that you believe in. Um, Cause that's going to be a way for you to kind of put your foot in the water and see if it really is something that you care about. Um, and you don't even, I, I, I also think it's a problem when people think that to get involved in politics, they have to volunteer for a candidate or they have to help someone get elected or they have to run for office. A lot of work that nonprofits do, even though they're 501c3s, is very political. Volunteer for organizations that are supporting immigrants in Nebraska right now, Heartland Workers Center, Immigrant Legal Center. 
those are organizations that need your help too. Um, organizations that are helping people in poverty, organizations that are helping women receive access to health care as more and more states are shutting down women's health care clinics, to say nothing about abortion, but even just getting contraceptives, even just getting pap smears. Um, there, there are fewer and fewer places that you can do that in Nebraska. So if you don't want to do the knocking doors thing, if you don't see a candidate right now that you're excited about, please get involved with a nonprofit because that's really important too. And that might be the stepping stone that you need to deciding to run for office or to, to encouraging someone else to run for office. Um, we all have those friends, right? Where it's like, God, I wish you'd run for something. Right. You would be great. And they go, no, I couldn't, or I, it's too expensive, or you don't get paid anything, or I couldn't put my family through that. Maybe you need to be the cheerleader for that person who, who needs to give it a go. And in any case, please reach out to me and tell me what you're going to do and how I can help you do it. That's a great note to end on. So thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. I'm so happy that you invited me here. Thank you. Riverside Chats is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce the show along with Ben Matukowitz through our company, Exorbin Creative. We're housed in Studio 62, right at Pet Shop. I almost said Pet Smart. Oh, man. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> we should go for that, shouldn't we? We should, uh, we should. Let's go up. Once our lease is up here, we'll go over to Pet Smart and say, hey, guys, we were, we were previously recording a podcast at Pet Shop, uh, but we, we thought, you know, we'll stay in the pet family. How about Pet Smart? Then we can go Petco next after that, I guess. Anyway, we're at Pet Shop in Benson, BFF's headquarters. Uh, pet Shop. Pet Shop. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash Creative if you feel so inclined to keep this show going. We'd like to keep doing it. And uh, we have some perks up there if you feel like giving in. Uh, giving in. Give, oh, boy. I guess I just, I'm messing this thing up all over the place. Give, <laughs> give in to your urges. Give us money. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Megan Hunt. Like I said, one of my favorite ones we've done. Megan is amazing. Uh, please support her. As she said, let her be inspiring. Let her help you. If you are interested in running for office and you have a similar philosophy to hers, whether you believe in the same thing she does or not, uh, I think that's awesome, and I think that you should. She's encouraged and inspired so many people, myself included. I hope that you found this conversation as worthwhile as I did. Anyway, we'll be back with more amazing conversations with more of the amazing people here in Nebraska on Riverside Chats. Thanks for listening.